So here we are in our study in Galatians, and last week I sort of indicated that we were going to finish up uh, the third chapter and then maybe come back and revisit some of the, you know, specific verses, and I decided not to do that. So, <laughs> you know, you, you can do that, and, you know, there's plenty of great just individual verses all through the Bible that you can do great messages on. But when, you know, when you do that, a lot of times what, of course, happens is you, you lose the continuity because you're sort of taking the text out of its context, which isn't always wrong. Um, but I just, I just felt like, <clears throat> the, you know, sort of like the, the Spirit has just developed a theme here as we're going through Galatians. And I thought, you know, rather than you know, sort of go off on a diversion and talk about another topic that we would just stick with our theme by just continuing to make our way through the passage. So today we're going to look at um, verses one through seven. I wanted John to read uh, just the, the few verses in chapter three, though, uh, to kind of catch us up on the context. But let me just remind you, so Paul is uh, continuing to educate the Galatians on the true purpose of the law which he says, you remember, that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And then once we come to Christ, once we're justified by faith, we become the sons of God, we become the heirs of God through Christ, then the, the law has done its work. Now in the verses here before us, chapter four, verses one through seven, uh, Paul is just going a bit deeper into this same idea, and he's um, developing a bit more thoroughly what it means to be an heir and a son of God through Christ. So we pick up in chapter four and verses one through three, let me read them. So Paul says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So remember, the Galatians are thinking that uh, somehow the law is going to enhance their relationship with God. Somehow it's going to supplement what they already have in their faith in Christ. And Paul is just going out of his way to show that, no, that's not the case. Um, the law served its purpose. And here he says, uh, you know, there, there was a time and a place for the law. And that's like, like a child who is actually the heir cannot enter into the full inheritance until a particular time that has been appointed by the father so as long as the law was in effect, we could never fully enter into the promises of God. But now that Jesus has come, we have entered into the promises of God fully, and the law is now uh, no longer a factor. So through the law, we were unable to receive the inheritance. The law could not bring us into the promises of God. That's what he's pointing out. So if the law couldn't bring us in the past into the promises of God, then why would anybody think that it's going to have any ability to, to take us, 
you know, anywhere in a, uh, a positive direction. So, so Paul's point is that it doesn't. So remember the law only shows us what we should do, tells us what we haven't done and leaves us powerless to change anything. That's, that's all the law does. The great mistake that people have made for ages, going all the way back to biblical times, is thinking that the law is somehow a means to saving us. It's not that. It is, as Paul said, it's the thing that was intended to drive us to Christ the Savior by showing us that it gave us no power to do what it commanded us to do. Now, we're talking here in the context about the law of Moses specifically, but let me remind you that that law, although it came through Moses to the nation of Israel, that law has been written on the hearts of every human being. And the, the law of Moses had three aspects to it, sort of. It had a legislative part that had to do with the nation. It had a ceremonial part that had to do with all the sacrifices. And then it had the moral component. Now, the Ten Commandments sort of sum up the moral component of the law. And that's the one that's binding for all people for all time. And, and that's the law that's been written in the heart of every human being. Those things that are contained mainly there in the Ten Commandments. So, so everybody, whether they are subjected to the law of Moses or whether they've come under what they might call like a law of Christ, maybe like, like is revealed in uh, the Sermon on the Mount or something, or whether people are just operating on some sort of a moral basis, it's all ultimately connected back to God's law. Now, there are people today in our culture who reject the Bible, reject the Christian gospel, in some cases reject that there's even a God, but when you listen to them and you watch how they behave, you realize that they do have a law that they seek to live according to. They've got a standard. There, there really isn't, uh, we talk about a, a person being amoral. Amoral means they have no morals. But it's, it's very difficult to find a person who's amoral. Everybody has a morality. Some people's morality is, is one that they've just simply invented or they've, they've uh, had it passed on to them from their uh, family or, or something like that. So there, there's not so much uh, <clears throat> a, a non-morality versus a morality. There's, there's a biblical morality that we as Christians hold to. But then there's a sort of like, you could just say a, a humanistic or an atheistic morality. And they're very committed to their morality. They are very judgmental in regard to people who don't live according to their morality. They're very aggressive when somebody disagrees with their moral view on something. We might think the view is immoral. In, in other words, we, we don't agree with it. It doesn't line up with a biblical view of morality, but it still is a view of morality. So my point is simply this, that there's, there's a law for everyone. And whether it's the law of Moses or the law that you've just invented or inherited, the truth of the matter is nobody lives up to the law. And that, that's the whole problem with law. You, you can't live it 
uh, yourself. This is why we see such radical hypocrisy in our culture today, because, and, and you know, you see so often what we would call a double standard. People's saying, you know, this is, this is the way it works, but then they don't apply it to themselves. Well, that's just another example of uh, here's a law, but, but everyone falls short of it. So Paul here to the Galatians is telling them essentially, once again, this same thing, that the law could never bring us into the promises of God. Now, not only is this stated in the biblical text, remember, as we've gone through Galatians, Paul is quoted from the Old Testament. He says um, um, that those who have failed to keep the law have uh, come under a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And then remember, uh, Jesus became a curse for us, for it's written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Um, so the, the idea here is that whether it was stated in a particular text it was also illustrated in the life of the nation that the law could never bring us into the promises of God. And it was even illustrated through the life of, of some of the, the recognized national leaders. And here's the example that I want to remind you of, the example of Moses. Now, Moses, <coughs> of course, was a person. But Moses becomes, after his own time, he becomes sort of the representative, the human representative for the law. So even when we come to the New Testament, we have references to the law of Moses. Now, it's the law of God, but because Moses gave it, it is oftentimes referred to as the law of Moses. But here's the point. Think of Moses. Moses represents the law, and what could Moses not do? Moses could not enter the promised land. You remember that? Here's Moses, the great lawgiver, the one who brings the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. But the one thing that he cannot do is he can't take them into the promised land. Now, the background story to that is that um, he was forbidden by God to go into the promised land because of a failure on his part. So God had given Moses an instruction to uh, speak to the rock. In the early history of the nation, when they came out of Egypt, they were uh, dying of thirst in the wilderness, and the Lord showed Moses a rock. He said, now take your rod, smite the rock. When you smite the rock, water's going to come forth, and the people will be saved. So Moses did that. Forty years later, there's a similar situation that develops. It's a different generation. It's not the same people, but it's the same kind of thing. They come to Moses. They think they're going to die of thirst. They're complaining. Moses goes to God. God says, Moses, speak to the rock. Don't strike it. Speak to the rock this time. Water will come forth and refresh the people. So Moses goes out, and instead of speaking to the rock, he's angry. And so he strikes the rock. And in doing this, he misrepresents God. So after the fact, God provides the water, the people are refreshed and saved. But Moses is then told by God that because you fail to represent me, 
because you, you failed to sanctify me before the people, you shall not go into the promised land. So all Moses could do was view the promised land from a distance, but he could not go there. He could not take the people there. Now, that actual event in the life of Moses was actually a story that was communicating the same thing because Moses couldn't take them into the promised land, but Joshua would be the one to do it. Now, remember, Joshua is the name for Jesus. So in Moses and Joshua, you have, a, you have an illustration. You have a picture. The law cannot take you to the promised land. The best the law can do is sort of show you, you know, from a distance what the promised land looks like. The law tells us about the blessing of obedience and all of that, but all we can do is see it from afar. Joshua had to take the people into the promised land. And so in those two men, you have kind of an illustration of this same point. So as long as they were under the law, they could never enter into the promises. And the law would hold them in this place of bondage until the Savior came. And so Paul goes on and he says in verse four, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So in the fullness of time, you ever think about God's um, view of time? Have you ever felt like God was not coming through on time? I think that oftentimes we do think that. Uh, we, we feel like, man, you know, this thing needed to happen yesterday and it's, it's not happening. And God, where are you? And, and how come you haven't come through? But you know, the truth of the matter is God, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. God's not on our schedule. We're, we're on his schedule, but we forget that a lot of times. God has a perfect timing for all things, he had the perfect timing for Jesus to come into the world. And it was in the fullness of time. Now, remember, it was 1,400 years after the, the deliverance of the people from Egypt before the Messiah came. Man, that's a long time. But through those 1,400 years, God was preparing the world for the Savior. And so in regard to why the period of Christ's coming is termed the fullness of time, there are many factors that would make it the fullness of time. Let me quote to you from John Stott. He said, uh, the many factors, for instance, he said, it was the time that Rome had conquered and subdued the inhabited earth when the Roman roads had been built to facilitate travel and the Roman legions had been stationed to guard them. Secondly, he says, it was also the time when the Greek language and culture had given a certain cohesion to society. At the same time, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people so that the hearts and minds of the people everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. Further, it was the time when the law of Moses had done its work of preparing men for Christ, holding them under its tutelage and in its prison so that they longed ardently for the freedom with which Christ would make them free. 
See, God was preparing the world. Now, he, he Stott here mentions the, the fact that the Roman roads were developed. Why was that important? Because the gospel was now going to become universal. Remember, the message had been relatively limited to Israel, God's covenant with them, but now the time is going to come where the message is going to be proclaimed from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you needed some roads in order to do that. So in the fullness of time, this system developed that would be the vehicle through which the gospel would go into all the world. Also the language issue. And so Stott refers to that, that uh, much of the world had at that time spoke the one language, just like many people in the world today speak English. English is sort of the lingua franca. It's the, the preferred language around the world today. That's how Greek was at the time. So now that there's this one common language, the New Testament, of course, is written in what? It was written in Greek so that it could go out as far and wide as possible. And then he refers to the, um, the, the fact that the mythological gods and so forth, that they were being, uh, their influence was diminishing. And, you know, there was the, the rise of the philosophers and all of those things that had transpired there. But then the law of Moses had brought people to that place of, of being weighed down and burdened. And the apostles in the book of Acts, they, they would talk about how the law was a weight that neither we nor our fathers could bear. So it was the fullness of time. It was God's appointed time. And just a quick little reminder, look, God has an appointed time. Has God given you a promise? Has God spoken something to you? And you're thinking, well, I don't know. You know, maybe God's not going to keep his promise because it's been so long. But listen, God is seldom early, but he's never late. He's right on time. And so don't worry. He's, he's going to come through just like he did here. Now, Paul tells us four things about what happened in the fullness of time. Number one, he says that God sent forth his son. And why this is important to note is because it, the very statement itself shows us something about Christ. It shows us that he was preexistent. It shows us that he came into the world from outside the world. God sent forth his son. You see, Jesus, you know, some people have, have wondered this, asked this. I've even had uh, Jewish and Muslim people ask me this question. How could a man become God? That's their question. How could a man become God? Well, the answer is a man can't become God. And a man didn't become God. That's not what we teach. That's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? That God became a man. That's a whole different story. And if God is God, he could certainly become a man if he chose to do so. And he did choose to do so in the person of his son. And so it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, Jesus, over and over again. He made it a point to tell people that he came into the world. He was sent into the world. He was sent by his father. And so we have a reference to his preexistence. We have a reference to his deity. But then it says that he was born of a woman. Why does it say that? Because it wants us to know that Jesus was a real human being. He wasn't... Um, 
like a, a superhero, you know, that came from another planet as a full-grown man. Uh, he wasn't uh, a spirit being who just sort of appeared here and there in a seemingly human body, but it wasn't really a human body. No, he was born of a woman. He was a human being, just like we are. So in these two statements, you have a reference to both the, the divinity of Christ and to the humanity of Christ. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Somebody asked the question the other day, well, um, you know, why is Jesus so special? Or why, why, why does he stand out among the other uh, religious leaders in history? Well, he stands out because Jesus is God. And no other religious leader even claimed to be God. But Jesus did. He claimed to be God the Son who became a man. And Paul affirms that here. But then he says that he was born under the law. He was born under the law. Now, born under the law means that he was, he was born as a son of the law. If you have Jewish friends, you might be familiar with uh, what's called a bar mitzvah. Uh, a bar mitzvah is for boys and a bat mitzvah is for girls. And it, it basically means you become a son or a daughter of the law, a son or a daughter of the commandment. And so Jesus, he's born into that situation. He is a son of the law, meaning he comes into the world and he's sub subject to the law. Not just the general law that we talked about a moment ago that's written in the, in the hearts of everybody, the faint uh, traces of God's law that's still there even in the heart of, of all people, but the law. He comes into the world as a son of the law in order to keep the law so that he can then pay the price for those who have transgressed the law. And this was a huge part of uh, what we know about Jesus, that he kept the law. He never violated. He kept it perfectly. He did the one thing that must be done in order to be saved by the law. You have to keep it. Jesus kept it. And so he could then pay the penalty for those that violated the law, which would be the rest of us. And then finally, to redeem those who are under the law. And that's what he did. By, by keeping the law himself and then by dying in the place of those who had violated the law, he redeemed those who are under the law. And so Paul says, he did all of this that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So we talked about, in a previous uh, message, we talked about our position. Remember, we talked about our position in Christ. So we've got our position, which is we're in Christ, we're seated in the heavenly places, we, we talked about that, but then we've got the, the practical reality of our salvation being worked out here on earth. Now, here we have a similar kind of a thing that Paul's talking about. We have received adoption as sons in Christ, so this is our position. Positionally, we are the sons of God, and remember I, I pointed out how uh, sons is used intentionally here, not 
because it excludes daughters, they're included in sons, but it's used specifically because the son in that culture, especially the adopted son, was the heir of everything. So in Roman culture, you could have a wealthy Roman citizen who did not have a natural born heir, and what they would often do is they would adopt a slave. They might be uh, have a household of slaves, and, and one of them, maybe they would become attached to like a father and a son, and so that wealthy man would adopt the slave, make him his son, and then pass on his inheritance to him. That's the picture that Paul is using. So that's what's happened to us. We have been adopted, brought into the family, and we are now the heirs. We're heirs of God, Paul says in Romans 8, and we're joint heirs with Christ. So that's our position. But then he goes on and he says, regarding the, because we are sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So here's the experiential side of it. So there's the positional aspect of our salvation, and then there's the experience aspect of it. So there's what is ours by fact and faith, and then there is the experience of it. There's the feeling of it. Now, the problem is our feelings fluctuate. And we most of the time let our feelings control at least what we think about the facts. And if our feelings don't line up with the facts, we tend to go with the feelings and ignore the facts. We've got to get this fact lodged in our brains. We are the children of God. And that's it. That, that's who we are. Whether we feel that or not is a different thing. But we do feel it. We don't feel it all the time, unfortunately. I mean, I would love to just walk around all day, every day, feeling like, man, I am a child of God. And I feel God is so close to me. And he's right here in my ear whispering to me. That would be fantastic, but it's just not the reality. But thank God there are those experiential moments as well. And here, it's, Paul says that it's the spirit of God's son that he has sent forth into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So the experience is that of being the children of God. Now, sometimes people ask this question. People have asked me this question. I've heard it asked on many occasions to others. How do you know that there's a God? I mean, come on. What proof do you have? And you could go through all kinds of different things to prove that there's a God to a certain extent. But, you know, honestly, what it comes down to it is, well, I know there's a God because I know him. I have a relationship with him. I have an experience with him. He has sent forth the spirit of his son into my heart. And so I cry out, Abba, Father, from the innermost depths of my being, I have this sense that I have this relationship with God. Now, that's, that's a very subjective thing. But it's a very real thing. You see, our, our Christian faith is not to just be based on objective facts, although it is that, but there's a subjective element to it as well. We're supposed to experience God. We're supposed to feel his presence and hear his voice and know his nearness to us, and we do. And every time we cry out, 
maybe in a moment of fear, we cry out, oh Lord, oh Father, help. That's the spirit within us. Or in a time of uh, elation, a time of, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it, this is such a wonderful moment. Oh, Father, thank you. That's the spirit welling up in us. We are the children of God. And because of that, we have this sense of being in this relationship with our Father. And Paul uses the word here, Abba. And this is an Aramaic word. And it transferred into the Greek language as well. So even in, you can go to Greece today and you can hear uh, young children referring to their you could hear them use this word, even though it's an Aramaic word. But it's a word that means, it's an intimate word, and it probably is best translated into English as Papa. Some people say Daddy. Maybe it's Daddy. Some people say Dada, because they say it's like the, the you know, just like the very first words that are being uttered by a child recognizing their, their father. Um, but suffice it to say, it's a word that implies intimacy. And it's that intimacy between a father and a child, a child and its father. Now, of course, we know that not everybody has that kind of human experience where you have a wonderful father-child relationship. But regardless of that, we have to recognize that, you know, that the reality is God and the way he loves us is what a father is supposed to be. Now, as we think about this relationship for a moment, I want to just rem remind you of five benefits. My wife said to say benefits because she doesn't like me to say things because things don't, to her, sound important enough. So... She ran all the way back to the back of the stage to tell me, say benefits, don't say things. <laughs> Sometimes I find a text in the Bible where it says these things. I'm like, look, right here, it says things, okay? <laughs> but I love her, so I'm going to say benefits. <laughs> Five benefits. Real quickly, just think about this. And, and this is, I want you to think about this in relationship. This is it. This is what we, we have as the children of God, as what Paul's talking about here. We have protection. A father protects his children. And so we, as the children of God, who's uh, the, the spirit of his son has been sent forth into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, we have that confidence that God is with us. He is our protector. He's also our provider. And you know, this is the thing that the world doesn't know anything about. And this is the thing, honestly, that religious people don't know anything about. You can be a person who's devoutly religious, but you don't, the thought of God as being your father. You know, in Islam, I mean, there are very many devout Muslims, right? They're very, very serious about their faith. But in Islam, the relationship between God, Allah, in their language, and the person is the relation, it's like the relationship between a slave and a master. That's the picture in Islam. It's a slave and a master. In Christianity, it's a father and his children. 
Man, what a contrast. What a radical difference. That's why so many Muslims are coming to faith when they really begin to understand what the gospel is and that they can go from being a slave-master relationship to a child-father relationship. A father provides. A father takes care of you. And you know, that's true. It doesn't even matter your age, does it? My kids are all grown up. They're all adults, and we're still taking care of them. We're still providing for them. And we don't mind. We love doing it. And we figure, well, you know, Lord's given us some money. Well, what are we going to do with it? We'll just take care of our kids. You know, we'll help them out. Because that's what fathers do. That's what parents do. I was talking to a, a man after first service. You know, I shared this first service, and he was telling me he's 71 years old. He said, yeah, I'm 71. My dad's 97, and my dad still treats me like I'm 19. <laughs> That's just the way it is. That's the way it works. But this is our Father, provides for us, guides us, guides us through life. We're not left to just try to figure it out, just, you know, out lost in the desert trying to find our way to water, trying to find our way to, you know, civilization. No, God guides us through life. But here, the two last things to me are so um, beautiful. It's access. Now, this is the amazing thing. We have access. Abba, Father, we can come before our Father anytime. You know, throughout my entire life as a father, my kids have always had immediate access. I mean, they wouldn't settle for anything less. They're just going to bust down the door, didn't matter what I was doing, and they were going to talk to me when they needed to talk to me. And, of course, I didn't mind that. I wanted that. I wanted them to know that. And we have that with God. We have this unrestricted access. Amazing. There's never a time when you are going to call out to the Lord and you're going to get a recording that says, you know, if you know your party's extension, <laughs> enter it now. <laughs> Don't you hate that when the, that happens? I hate that. Or you're going you know, to get the secretary that says, sorry, no, they're not available right now. It's, that's not going to happen. We have direct access to the Father. He's our Father. And He stops everything, so to speak, and, and welcomes us right in. And then fifthly, finally, the unconditional love of a Father. You know, this is the way it is with, with our children. We love them unconditionally. We love them when they're naughty. We love them when they're nice. We, you know, it does, it, we, we just keep loving them. And these are the, the truths that apply to our relationship with God. He loves us unconditionally. He doesn't, you know, we, we always think, we're just wired this way, unfortunately. We're, we're wired to think that he loves us if we perform well. But we've got to get away from that model. We've got to get away from that idea and realize, no, God loves us. Whether we perform well or not. Now, part of loving us is sometimes disciplining us. So if we're disobedient, he doesn't just go, oh, well, I love you. Don't worry about it. He, he will discipline us because that's what a loving father does. But he doesn't stop loving us. He continues to love us. And this is the thing that we need to we, we really need to get a hold of this uh, because love 
is, is the thing that frees us from all of these, these insecurities and these bondages and, and things that we find ourselves in. You know, when you know you're loved, it, it enables you actually to function more normally and, and better in life. You're not constantly falling under the, the condemnation and the fear. And so you end up, as Paul finally says, he says, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's chapter three, verse 29. Verse seven, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, no longer a slave to performance-based acceptance and the fear that accompanies that. When we have the idea that our acceptance with God is based on performance, that result, that leads us to, to live in fear. Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 8. He said, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. It's the same thing he's saying right here. You see, when, when it's a legal relationship, then there's fear. And the fear is rooted in my failure to live up to the legal standard. But you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Romans 8. It's the same thing that Paul is saying here in Galatians 4. So we have now entered in to this relationship. This is the deepest relationship. This is the, the ultimate relationship. And, and once again, Paul's pushing back on the Galatians and he's saying, look, you, you're already there. God is your father. He sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. You have this relationship. What are you even thinking about with the law? Why would you go under the law? The law was there just for its, it, it was temporarily there until Christ could come. You couldn't enter the inheritance under the law, but now that Christ has come, you have entered the inheritance. You've got everything you could ever need or want or imagine. So don't even think to try to enhance this. It's impossible. And so as we close again, you know, as I said in the beginning, I, I felt like to go back and, you know, take a single verse and kind of give a topical sort of a message. I felt like it's, it, it was detracting. I, I felt like the Lord said to me, look, I'm developing a theme here that I want you to stick with. And the theme is my love and grace. And if there's anything that I think that we as Christians have missed, there's a few things, but one of them is the grace of God. We know it theoretically, we talk about it. We know we're saved by grace, but we don't necessarily live in the context of grace. We don't necessarily really experience it because our default is to always go back to performance. And God wants to free us from that. And he wants to free us from that by reminding us that we are his children. We're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. And this is the truth that, and Jesus said this. He said, Father, that I may be in them and you in me and that the love with which you have loved me, that they would know that you love them with that same love as well. You see, when God looks at you and he looks at me, man, he loves us. How much does he love us? Well, you know what, what, what he feels like when he looks at Jesus? That's what he feels like when he looks at you too. 
Remember the prophecy in Isaiah 42 where the Lord spoke about his servant in whom he said, this is my servant in whom my soul delights. And then remember at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son. And then at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. And guess what? When he looks at you, when he looks at me, that that's the same thing. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. These are the people that I love. And let's embrace that, accept that. Recognize that. The spirit, God sent his spirit into our hearts and so we can cry out, Abba, Father. We have that intimacy. He's given us that and he expects us to live in the reality of that. So may God help us. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, that you are our Father. Lord, that our relationship with you is that of a father and his children and a good, good father. The father of lights in in whom is no variation or shadow of turning. There is no darkness, but only light and love and goodness. And oh, how we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for all of us today that we would just know what it means by experience more and more that we are sons of God, daughters of God, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, that you are our father, that we are your children. And Lord, that you love us. The bottom line is you love us and that we would know that love and live in it and experience all the freedom that comes through knowing that love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.